This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. At the beginning of Megillah Rus, after Avimelech, Machlon, and Kilion, a father and two sons had died, their wives, Naomi and Rus and Arpa, were left with trying to figure out exactly what their next step was going to be. Naomi valiantly tried to convince and persuade her daughters-in-law, Rus and Arpa, to return back to Moab. After all, they were princesses. They came from a prestigious home of royalty. They had a bright future ahead of them. Why not go back? Why not return back to Moab? Why not go ahead and pursue your dreams instead of remaining with an elderly woman that has no future? Rus and Naomi wouldn't hear of it. Rus and Naomi could not be persuaded, would not be convinced. They clung to their mother-in-law. Naomi tries to persuade them even further and says, even if I were to remarry again, a son or sons would not be able to be eligible to marry for many, many years. What can I possibly give you? What can I possibly provide for you? What future do you have by clinging to me? At that point, Rus without any hesitation, clings to her mother-in-law, is unwilling to hear that which Nami has to share, and is unwilling to depart from her mother-in-law. However, Arpa at that point is convinced. She realizes that she has other opportunities, other uh, other options, and so therefore uh, departs from her mother-in-law, kisses her mother-in-law, de- demonstrates her love to her mother, towards her mother-in-law, and ultimately returns, returns to Moab. There is a shocking medrash in which the Medrash tells us something that happened the very same day that Arpa departed from her sister-in-law Rus and from her mother-in-law Naomi. The Medrash tells us that that very same day, just a few short hours later, Arpa was involved with the most heinous, inappropriate, immoral, illicit types of behaviors with a number of men from the Plishtim. Arpa, who just a few short hours earlier, was on the same level as Rus, Rus, who we know to be the matriarch, the great-grandmother of David HaMelech. Rus, to be the ultimate uh, uh, ancestor of Mashiach. Arpa was on the same level as her just a few short hours earlier. And yet somehow, in just a few short hours, she descended from being a righteous woman who was unwilling to depart from her mother-in-law and her sister-in-law. She descended into these incredibly immoral, illicit, inappropriate behaviors. And the obvious question we need to try to understand, try to explore, try to unpack is, what exactly happened? How could it possibly be that in just a few short hours, this woman, Arpa, who was on the level of Rus, could descend, could ultimately deteriorate in her behaviors and conduct herself in such a way? I once heard a beautiful insight from Rabbi Friend, uh, in the name of Rabbi Salavechik, based on a Gemara in Yuma, on Daf Lametest Amad Beis. The Gemara and Yuma, Daflamites Amad Beis, describes Shimon HaTzadik's last year of life. Shimon HaTzadik was one of the last of uh, the Kohanim Gedolim, uh, right before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And Shimon HaTzadik uh, was going into the Kodesh HaKadoshim the last year of his life. And Shimon HaTzadik says, after he departed from the Kodesh HaKadoshim, that I'm going to die this year. And all of his uh, colleagues, all of his students, all of his constituents, the Jewish people, ask him, how do you know you're going to die? And Shimon Tzadik describes the following scene as he entered and exited the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And with this, was able to determine that this was going to be the last year of his life. He explained that under normal circumstances, each and every year on, the, on, on Yom Kippur, the one day a year that he's allowed to enter into the Kodesh HaKadoshim to beseech himself, to beseech and advocate on behalf of the Jewish people, he would be escorted by the image of an elderly man dressed in white. 
And when he would be uh, finished with his davening, when he'd finish repenting on behalf of the Jewish people, that very same man who escorted him in dressed in white would escort him out dressed in white as well. However, this year was not the same. This year, when he was about to enter to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, he was escorted by that very same man. However, that man was not dressed in white. He was dressed in black. And when he concluded his prayers, when he concluded his tfilos, when he concluded praying and uh, begging for mercy on behalf of the Jewish people, that man was nowhere to be found, and Shimon HaTzadik had left the Kodesh HaKadoshim by himself. And with that, says Shimon HaTzadik, I know that I'm going to die. The Gemara concludes that seven days after Sukkot, in fact, Shimon HaTzadik departed this world and he had died. And the obvious question is, what is going on here? What exactly did Shimon HaTzadik see in the image of this individual, this elderly man dressed in white versus dressed in black, that Shimon HaTzadik was able to determine that he was going to die? Rabbi Frank quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik, who provides an unbelievable insight and an unbelievable approach to understanding this particular passage in the Gemara, which hopefully will also help us understand what happened to Arpa. And Rabbi Soloveitchik explained that Shimon HaTzadik as the Kohen Gadol, his job as a leader was always to be the eternal optimist. When you're a leader, you always have to see the glass half full. You always have to have an optimism that you can help the people who follow you get through whatever it is they need to get through, to be able to overcome those obstacles, to be able to persevere. Shimon HaTzadik explains Rabbi Soloveitchik, each and every year before this year, was able to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, irrespective of some of the transgressions the Jewish people may have committed, was able to enter into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, seeing that elderly fellow dressed in white which was representative of that optimism that he was going to be able to beseech and pray and beg for mercy on behalf of the Jewish people and felt very confident that he'd be successful. So much so that even when he departed the Kodesh HaKadoshim, that elderly man would be dressed in white because he felt confident that he was successful in advocating on behalf of the Jewish people. Explains the Gemara and says Shimon HaTzadik, this year was different. We're nearing the end of our Beis HaMikdash. I am seeing so many transgressions that the Jewish people are violating. Their behaviors are incompatible with what it means to be a Shomer Torah Mitzvah. They're incompatible with being worthy of God's presence in the Beis HaMikdash. And so as Shimon HaTzadik entered into the Kosh HaKadoshim, unlike other years, this elderly fellow wasn't dressed in white, but unfortunately was dressed in black. Symbolic and representative of pessimism. Symbolic and representative of a feeling of inadequacy, of not being able to represent and advocate the Jewish people in the appropriate way. So much so that Shimon HaTzadik described that the elderly man was nowhere to be found when he would depart from the Kodesh HaKadoshim that year because he felt he wasn't successful in begging for mercy on behalf of the Jewish people. And therefore Shimon HaTzadik told those around him, if I as the Kohen Gadol, the leader of the Jewish people, if I'm not capable of advocating for the Jewish people, if I can't have the confidence and the optimism that I always have hope, if all I feel is hopelessness and despair for the Jewish people, I am no longer worthy, I can no longer be privileged to serve as the Kohen Gadol. And so therefore I'm going to die soon. And therefore explains Rabbi Friend, based on this Gemara, how we can understand what happened with Arpa. You see, Arpa, just a few short hours earlier, was on the same level as Rus, was on the same level as Rus. Rus, this righteous individual, Arpa, this righteous individual. But the difference is that they ultimately decided on two different paths. Ruth was unwilling to waver. Ruth was unwilling to be convinced or persuaded to depart from her mother-in-law because she saw that that path, she saw the path of Yiddishkeit, the path of Naomi, was the way she wanted to go. 
Arpa, on the other hand, although she initially was refusing to be convinced, was ultimately persuaded, was ultimately convinced that she should go back and return to her people. When Arpa departed from her people, explains Rabbi Friend, it didn't take long for Arpa to realize she had made an egregious mistake. It didn't take long for her to realize, oh my goodness, what did I do? And unfortunately, when a person feels that, they take, that they've made a terrible mistake, one of the emotions, one of the feelings that are generated is hopelessness, is despair, is yeish. When you feel you have nothing to, nowhere to turn to, when you feel you have no hope, when you feel total and 100% despair, you can be on the highest of the highs and you can drop to the lowest of the lows. My brother, for example, who is an addiction specialist, has told me on many occasions, a person who is an alcoholic, a person who is addicted to drugs, could be sober, could be clean for 20, 25 years. You have one day of despair. You have one day of hopelessness. You have one day in which you feel like you have nowhere to turn to, no one to turn to, nowhere to turn to. You have nowhere to, to hope and dream. You have nothing to aspire to. You can be sober and clean for 20 years and that one day will break you. That, unfortunately, is what happened to Arpa. Arpa, in just a few short hours, realized the terrible mistake that she had made. She realized that she had never should have departed from Naomi. She never should have left Naomi. She should have stuck with her in Rus. And yet, because she did so, she had nothing to dream for anymore. She had nothing to hope for anymore. She had total despair. And when a person has total despair, unfortunately, you can be on the highest of the high in one moment, and you can drop and deteriorate to the lowest of the lows in, in the next moment. It's with this uh, understanding of ARPA that also helps us uh, understand and explain another area that many people grapple with. We know we're going to be celebrating this coming week, the holiday of Shavuos. And in the holiday of Shavuos, we celebrate Kabbalah Satorah, receiving of the Torah, uh, an experience that the Shifcha, the maidservant, had greater prophecy than Yechezkel ben Buzi. A time in which they saw the kolos ubrakim. They saw the sounds of, uh, of the thunder and lightning, which is something that is impossible under normal circumstances. They experienced a spiritual high like no other. And yet just a few short weeks later, they were dancing around the golden calf, dancing around the, the, the eagle hazav, this avodah zara, this idol that is incomprehensible. How could it possibly be that in such a short period of time, they could be experiencing the highest level of prophecy, literally understanding and recognizing and acknowledging God's presence in the most tangible way, and just a few short weeks later, being able to be comfortable, being able to reconcile, and being willing to dance around the golden calf. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, the famous Rosh Hashim of the Mir, in a Sefer Sichos Musa explains, based on a Gemara in Shabbos on Daf Peites. The Gemara in Shabbos on Daf Peites tells us that uh, they, the Jewish people were expecting, were, uh, were counting the days until Moshe would ultimately descend from Shemayim. After the Torah had been given, Moshe uh, ascended to learn with Hashem to understand the Torah Shabbat Chsav, the written tradition, the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral tradition, and we would ultimately come back down and descend and teach the Torah that Hashem had envisioned to the Jewish people. And on the day in which the Jewish people were expecting Moshe to come down, the way they counted, they calculated the 40th day, we all know the story that Moshe does not come down, they had miscalculated. And the Gemara in Shabbos tells us that the Satan, Satan, tried an attempt to convince the Jewish people that Moshe was not coming back. And so in the morning of that very day, the Satan went and said to the Jewish people, Nu, where's your leader? And the Jewish people says, No, he's coming, he's coming. 
A few short hours later, he comes back again. He says, no, where's your leader? I don't think he's coming back. And B'nai Israel could not be convinced. They could not be deterred. And they said, no, no, he's coming. It's the 40th day. To which the Satan waited a couple of more hours. And once again, at this time, uh, the Jewish people said, he's coming. And the Satan says, oh, really? You sure you can, you're confident that he's coming? I'm going to show you he's not coming. And he produced what I consider to be like a hologram, an image of Moshe Rabbeinu in the coffin. And when the Jewish people saw, says the Gemara, that Moshe was in the coffin, it was at that moment that they ran to Aaron and said, we need collect, to collect all the jewelry, all the gold, all the silver, to be able to manufacture this Egel Hazav, this golden calf. What exactly happened, asks Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. What did they see in the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu, their leader, was in the coffin that ultimately served as a catalyst for wanting to now serve in Avodah Zarah? Again, just a few short weeks after they experienced this incredible unparalleled prophecy. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz explained that this was the first time they had not had their leader since they developed a national identity since being liberated from Mitzrayim. When they saw Moshe Rabbeinu in the coffin, they realized they had no leader. And when they had no leader, they began to feel hopelessness. They began to feel what we would call yeyush, despair. There was no one to turn to. Who were they going to turn to? Who is going to be the person that's going to, going, to, going to lead them? Who is going to answer their questions? Who's going to help resolve their difficulties, their challenges? Who's going to provide support and guidance when they need it? There isn't anyone. When the Jewish people felt yeyush, when the Jewish people felt despair, when the Jewish people felt they had no one to turn to, you can experience unbelievable, unparalleled prophecy a few short weeks earlier. And you could be dancing around the eagle has of the golden calf a few short weeks later. That when you experience Yeush, when you experience despair, when you feel like you have no one to turn to, the same way that Arpa can be at the highest of the high on the same level of Rus, in a few short hours later, she can be doing unthinkable things with a group of Plishtim men. You can have the Jewish people uh, experiencing a prophecy like no other and have a few weeks later be able to go ahead and dance around the golden calf. Yeush, despair is such a dangerous type of, 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 of perspective. It's a dangerous type of approach. It's a dangerous emotion to have. You could be on the highest of the high and deteriorate and drop and descend to the lowest of the low in such a short period of time. I heard a beautiful story about the Kloisenberger Rebbe, who uh, many people are familiar with, a survivor of the Holocaust, lost his wife and all of his children. And there's two different versions of this story. I'll share one of them in which right after the war, it was a month or two after the war, and he had uh, been davening with a group of broken Jews, and they uh, were davening Parshas Kisavo, of course, which has the Tolchacha. And the general custom of the Tolchacha, the general custom of this rebuke is to read it very low, because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to hear about all of the uh, all of the situations, all the punishments, all the severe con- consequences that we may unfortunately experience as a result of our iniquities, our tra- our transgressions, our averos. But yet this year, the Kleisenberger Rav went up to the Balkore. He went over to the uh, to the one reading the Torah, and he told the Balkore to read louder. And everybody was very confused. That's not the custom in all of our shuls. We're supposed to read it lower. And so he said louder. And so the Balkori, okay, you don't question the Kleisenberger Rebbe. You don't question him. And they, he, continued, he started to raise his voice. And he said louder. And he started to raise his voice even more. And he said louder. 
and he said he, he started to raise his voice even more. And after Kriya Satora, the reading of the Torah, and after Musaf, all the Hasidim, all these broken Jews, having survived the Holocaust barely in, in, in a skeleton, in just skin and bones, went over to their Rebbe and said, Rebbe, we don't understand. We remember, remember back in the, before the war, the Minog always has been that you're supposed to go ahead and say the Tochacha, lane the Tochacha, read the Torah, these Psukim, these 60 or so Psukim, in a low voice, not to instill within fear, not to instill this uncomfortable feeling of being aware of what those severe consequences could be. Why all of a sudden this year are we doing it? So the Kleisenberger Rebbe explained as follows. We kept our part of the deal, and now we're telling Hashem we want him to keep his part of the deal. What did he mean? What he meant was that despite all the challenges we've experienced through the Holocaust, all the punishments that are articulated, that are written down, that are verbalized, that are passed down from generation to generation, which will serve as the consequences for our transgressions, we've experienced and yet we have not been Miyaish. We have not given up hope. We have not given in. We still believe. We still observe. We still want to cling to you, Hashem. We've kept our part of the deal, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We want you to hear in a loud, unified voice that we're expecting you to keep your part of the deal. Something that you and I probably could never say. Wouldn't have the guts to say and wouldn't be in a position to be able to say. But the Kleisenberger of the righteous, holy individual that he was, who rebuilt Kleisenberg and Sanz, who rebuilt Yiddishkeit in such an incredible way, he has the shoulders to be able to say such a thing. We weren't Miyayesh. We've been through unthinkable experiences through the Holocaust. And yet we didn't give up hope. We didn't give up on you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You can't give up on us. You can't uh, relinquish your control over us. You can't throw in the towel when it comes to us. We kept our part of the deal by not giving up. Now it's your turn to make good on your part of the deal. That is the appropriate hashkafa, the appropriate philosophy to Yiddishkeit. Yeush is not part of our lexicon. Despair, hopelessness, giving up, not aspiring for greatness, not uh, pursuing and wanting to ensure that we continue to stay the course, to keep our eye on the ball, not allowing the obstacles in front of us to deter us is the way to go. Yeush, hopelessness, as the Kloisenburger Rebbe said, we didn't give up hope, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you can't give up hope on us. That's not the appropriate hashka- That's the appropriate hashkafa. Unfortunately, Arpa didn't learn that. She gave up. Shimon HaTzadik did understand that. Shimon HaTzadik understood that if I'm going to give up hope on the Jewish people, I'm no longer worthy of serving in the capacity of the Kohen Gadol. The Jewish people who experienced an unbelievable level of prophecy of Nevuah, could fall in such a short amount of time when a person feels when a person feels despair. I've mentioned many times in the past, but it's such an unbelievable insight of the Kutzka Rebbe. The Kutzka Rebbe explains based on the Gemara in Bava Metzia and Elam Metzius in the second parak. The Gemara there introduces a very famous topic of Yeyush, of giving up hope on an object. A person loses an object and it has no simon, it has no identifying mark. So the Gemara tells us that if you lose something that doesn't have an identifying mark, so automatically you're going to give up hope of ever trying to retrieve it. And as a result, the Chazal, the rabbis, permit another person to acquire that object. Since you're giving up hope of ever finding it, you're essentially relinquishing ownership over it. And so therefore now it becomes ownerless, what we would call hefker. And as a result, another person legally is allowed to possess that item. That is the mainstream, mainstream simple way of understanding this Gemara. However, the Kutzke Rebbe Zuchus Yagin Aleno gives us an unbelievable insight, which I've mentioned in the past. 
in which the Kutzke Rebbe says there's another way to understand this topic. And says the Kutzke Rebbe, you want to understand what it means? What it means is that when you're miyayish, when you give up hope, it's not that simply because you've given up hope, now it becomes ownerless because you've given up hope of ever retrieving it and another person can repossess it. Says the Kutzke Rebbe, giving up hope is an Avera. It's something that is incompatible, is inconsistent with our belief system. And Chazal says, if you go ahead, go ahead and you go and you give a Pope of finding something, that's an Avera. Chazal says, we're going to punish you. And how are we going to punish you? We are not going to allow you to retrieve your item. We are going to allow someone else to possess that item as a punishment to you for giving up hope. Because Yehosh, giving up hope, is not a Jewish value. It's incompatible with what we believe. We're all going to have Nisyonos. And we're all going to have challenges. And we're all going to have obstacles that we're going to have to overcome. But giving in to that pressure, giving in, feeling despair, having no one to turn to, having a feeling of hopelessness is not consistent with what we believe. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu positions us, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us an Isayon, the Ramban famously says, it's to bring me in HaKoach HaLapoel. It's to bring that which we have, that potential within us, to fruition, to actuality. It's not to lay latent within us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts us in certain situations not to make our lives more, di- more difficult, but to be able to realize who we are and who we can become. Not to give in, not to be miyayish, not to have those feelings of despair and to throw in the towel. And so therefore, says the Kutzke Rebbe, you want to be miyayish, you want to go ahead and give in. You're hopeless, you feel those feelings of despair. So Chazal say in that situation, we're going to punish you by not allowing you to retrieve your item. What an unbelievable insight. And that, unfortunately, was the mistake of Arpa. Arpa gave in. Arpa felt that she had made a terrible, grave mistake, which we all do. We all make mistakes along the way. But instead of trying to rebound, instead of trying to understand what the mistake was and to try to grow from it, she allowed that mistake to paralyze her. She allowed that mistake to serve as a catalyst to deteriorate and to descend into the unthinkable when just a few short hours earlier, she was on the highest of the highs. I want to close with an unbelievable story, which I read about a baseball player. The baseball player, Matt Imhoff. Matt Imhoff was a pitcher in, uh, in, for the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, he was a well-known uh, player who was up and coming. And uh, he described the following experience uh, in his life. And he said that um, after each uh, pitch, after each time that he pitched, um, you need to stretch out the muscles in your arm. And in the in the uh, in the training facility, there were these um, uh, bands that were attached to the wall, elastic bands, and they had handles. And what you would do is, because of the tension, you would stretch out the muscles in your shoulders. And it allowed that even after a, a pitching stretch, it would allow you to really ensure that your muscles stayed loose uh, and which allowed you to be able to throw harder. And he explained that he had done this many, many times with his trainer. And one time he was doing it and he, he was stretching back. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the metal piece that was attached to the wall that was holding the elastic band uh, unhinged from the wall and it flew at, as you can imagine, because of the tension from the elastic that he was pulling so hard, the metal piece from the wall flew into his face. And as the article describes, as he writes this article, the article describes he's bleeding everywhere, he's experiencing incredible, incredible pain, and after being rushed to the hospital and speaking to some surgeons, it was made clear to him that his eye was going to have to be replaced. He was going to have to be given a fake eye, 
and that essentially his career was going to be over. You could imagine a person who, as he described, starting playing baseball at the age of eight, having these dreams and aspirations of being in the major leagues, which he was, and it all went away in the blink of an eye. No pun intended. Literally not having the opportunity to pursue his dream of being a baseball player. And he describes in the article that his entire life changed. Physically walking through airports and not having the same level of peripheral vision. Realizing that he was not going to be able to pursue his professional aspirations. Dealing with some of the emotional uh, fallout of wondering what are people thinking of him when they see a patch on his eye. And going through this entire process. But he describes at the very end of the article something that I want to share with you, which I believe highlights everything that we are talking about. And he says as follows. He says, I'm a firm believer that baseball throughout all my struggles on and off the field prepared me for this moment. But the greatest thing baseball ever did for me was teach me who I could be without it. Matt Imhoff could have gotten in one of two directions. He either could have thrown in the towel. He could have said my whole life was up to, leading up to this point, the whole trajectory, the odyssey, the journey of my life I had worked towards was to become a professional baseball player since the, the age of eight. And now it's all over. I'm going to crawl into a hole. I'm going to stay where I am. I'm not going to come out. My life is over. And yet, while Matt Imhoff did have to work through his own process of coming to this point of acknowledgement, of recognition, of self-awareness, to be able to say that through all of his struggles, this was what he was prepared for in life. That's the understanding of never giving up hope. Never being miyaish, Never feeling hopelessness. Never feeling despair. Understanding that we're all going to have our challenges. We're all going to have those obstacles. We're all going to have to persevere. We're going to have to strategize. We're going to have to learn more about ourselves through some of these more difficult situations. But at the end of the day, we have to realize that all of these situations Hashem has put us through to become better people. All of these situations Hashem has positioned us in in order to ultimately realize our potential, to realize what we're capable of, to understand more about ourselves, not to be miyayish, not to give up hope, not to feel like we should just crawl under the covers and not face the world, but rather to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in our corner. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to become the best versions of ourselves, and sometimes the only way to do that is when we have an obstacle. But to respond with yeyush, with despair, with hopelessness, will ultimately result in an arpa type of life, will ultimately result in dancing around chet ha'egel, will ultimately result in a way in which you will not be able to persevere through the most unthinkable uh, experiences like the Holocaust and to ultimately give in. And so therefore we are to learn from arpa and we are to learn from everything we have described to not be mayayish as the Kutzka Rebbe says because ultimately you're going to be punished for it because it's not a compatible it's not consistent with the values of our belief system. We have to be machazik. We have to strengthen ourselves. We have to realize that everything we're going through are meant to go through and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is helping us realize our potential. And Amir Tashem, if we can derive, if we can learn out from, if we can glean the chizuk, if we can glean the strength from what not to do, we will ultimately realize our potential, see the greatness that, is, that, is, that lays beneath us and ultimately become the best versions of ourselves.